Good morning. Always good to see you, to be with you. If you find that, whether in this particular season or in an ongoing way, that you struggle with weariness of soul, uh, the passage we have before us today is one that is meant to minister to your heart. We are in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Uh, we are in chapter 8. We're going to begin with verse 18 this morning, if you want to turn to that. Uh, the, the background of what's been happening in these two chapters uh, of 7 and 8, which is kind of a, a transitional section in the middle of the book. God's people had come to the prophet with a question. We see in the beginning of chapter 7. Should I weep and abstain? It was a reference to their fasting, their habit of regularly fasting. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Their fasting came from the reality that uh, through the sin and rebellion of their fathers, God had brought judgment to the nation. That judgment came through the empire of the Babylonians, whom God sent to uh, conquer the land, destroy the city of Jerusalem, and carted away tens and tens of thousands of the people into the Babylonian Empire. And there for 70 years the people remained. And over their years in captivity with their homeland destroyed, they had established a series of feasts to mourn what had taken place. The different uh, fasts each were connected with a particular event involved in the destruction of Jerusalem and of their nation. But now they have returned to the land. They are starting to rebuild their lives. They're rebuilding the city. And the question has come up, should we keep fasting as we have these many years? But we saw that God doesn't answer their question directly. Uh, first, God addresses how they thought about their own faithfulness to him. We saw that a couple weeks ago in the beginning of, of chapter 7, where the Lord asked them, when you fasted and mourned for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? In other words, the Lord wanted them to think through, were they sorry just because they were in a bad situation and they wanted God to make life good again, or were they truly sorry that judgment had come because of sin? Was their sorrow just self-centered, that life wasn't as they wanted, or were they truly sorry before God? And so he probed that issue with them. Then God addressed not only how they thought about their own faithfulness to him, but how did they think about God's then faithfulness to them? How were they interpreting it? 
In the beginning of chapter 8, two weeks ago, Dan preached an excellent message where the Lord told them, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And then the Lord went on to describe the promises that he had made to the people that he was continuing to keep. Now, God finally addresses their original question. And we see that verse 18 of chapter 8. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh month and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. God is answering their question whether or not we should keep fasting uh, by shaping how they were thinking about the future. How are they thinking about their life going forward under the Lord and whether or not he was good and true to them. The lives of these Jews had been dominated by fasting. Fasting in the fourth month, fasting in the fifth month, fasting in the seventh month, fasting in the tenth month. And these fasts were all seasons of mourning as they described it, a time of weeping over all that had taken place. Now, fasting in the Old Testament was typically during times of great distress. The people would fast to God when great obstacles and burdens had come upon them and they were seeking for God to deliver them or when they had come to recognize that the people had fallen into great sin, and so they fasted in mourning because of that sin before God. But fasting in the Old Testament was always related to distress among the people. And over these decades of fasting, multiple times of a year of mourning, their minds had become shaped by that to focus on the failure that they had inherited, that our fathers had turned against God, judgment had come upon the nation, and now here we are living in the consequences of that past failure. And they were also then well aware of the widespread opposition around them. They had come back into the land, but there were many who opposed the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the temple. And they were constantly faced with large enemies around them, mightier nations that were threatening to them. So this question to God about fasting, should we keep fasting, was a question about their future. Lord is... Is our condition going to change? Is there reason for hope? And I imagine there are many here this morning who can relate to that. Lord, 
Will it ever end? Lord, how bad is it going to get? How many burdens are going to come? How long will they last? And we can fall into a state before God where all we see are our own failures, the opposition around us, the burdens we're under, and our life under God is really just a, a spirit of fasting, a spirit of sorrow. Well, God declares that he's going to change their fasting into feasting. Verse 19, he says, all these fasts that you have, they shall become seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Now, feasting in the Bible is the opposite sense of fasting. Rather than a time of distress and mourning, feasting is meant to represent that life is good, that we are content, that we are at rest, that we are celebrating the goodness of God. And the Lord here says, this sense of sorrow and distress, I'm going to take them and turn them into a sense of God's goodness and faithfulness. I'm going to turn your fasting into feasting. Under the Mosaic law, God had actually given to the people numbers of feast days and seasons of feasting. There was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for a week, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booze, which again lasted a week. God had inserted into the routine of the people's lives and worship many fast days. Their lives were meant to be dominated by the sense of feasting. And somehow my mind's telling me I'm mixing up the words feasting and fasting and get them backwards at times. Whenever we're talking about something good, I mean to say feasting. When it's sad and mournful, I'm meant to say fasting. And in my mind, I'm going, which did you say? Did you get it right? Did you get it wrong? So someone keep a scorecard so you can let me know at the end how badly or how well I've done. And some of you are saying, oh, I've already started. <laughs> God had meant to bring a sense of feasting regularly into their lives. The reminders, God is good, God is faithful. God is at work in the midst of his people. But they did not have that spirit or sense in their hearts. God had actually only required one fast day a year, which was the Day of Atonement. That was a day of fasting to examine their hearts, to turn their guilt over to the Lord as a special sacrifice was made in the Holy of Holies with the high priest casting the sins of the people out of the land. One day of fasting he required, and that was a day to examine their hearts, to turn over sin and, and know their lives were clean before God. 
And then the other reminders through the year were meant to show God's faithfulness. But that's not how they were living. They were not living under a strong sense of God's grace. Now we know in the age of the church where we have the New Testament, the fulfillment of Old Testament pictures, that all of those feast days that fill their calendar all pointed to Christ. And they have all been fulfilled by Christ, pointing to his death, to his perfect sacrifice, to his resurrection, to his reign as king, to his sending of the Spirit to dwell with us. The feast days were all pointing to the reality that God was so faithful to his people, he would send his son, a deliverer, not only to meet temporal needs, but to deliver them forever and gather them as a people to dwell with him. They had the promise of the coming Christ. We have the fulfillment of the coming, reigning, victorious Jesus. But life is still difficult. And fasting at times is so appropriate. The humbling of our heart before God. Asking him to meet us in our need. But even though fasting at times is appropriate, and the acknowledgement that life is difficult is real and God sees it, the people of God who have a Savior, who have a reigning King, who have the indwelling Spirit, we're meant to be people who live with the anticipation of feasting. That is always to be in our mind. What God has established, what he has promised, where he is taking us. Despite whatever circumstances you have, as difficult as they may be, God is merciful. Because he has removed the guilt of every sin. We live without any condemnation under God. The truth is, despite difficulties, God is being good. He, in fact, lives within us in the person of the Spirit who is always active, working, we are told, to perfect us in the image of Christ himself. And God is faithful. Not one promise will fail. Not one declaration of the gospel will turn out to be empty or void. God's presence will never leave. He will never let go. God can only be faithful. And how we live before him and how we think about life and how we think about what is coming should be shaped by the realities that God is merciful, he is good, he is faithful.
the gospel cries out that we should be a people with feasting hearts, those who are delighting in the goodness of our God, those who are lifting up what he has done and living in the reality of our God who is Savior King. Verse 19 tells us that our thoughts of God's activity are meant to be sources of joy and gladness. Can you honestly say that your life has much joy and gladness? And another question is, the joy and gladness we do have, is it just based upon how smoothly our days are? That joy and gladness is based upon whether or not tr people treat me well today, whether I get done what I wanted, or the absence of problems. It, is our joy and gladness that shallow? Or is our joy and gladness, is it deeply connected to the realities of the gospel which don't change we know what God has accomplished and we know what Christ has coming we know his promise we know how life ends we know how this world ends we know what kingdom stands we know who we will see the moment our eyes go from death into eternity we know who will be there these things should dominate our hearts and our attitudes. For those who anticipate feasting, we're told how to live at the end of verse 19. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. God is taking our sorrows, turning them to joy. Therefore, People of God love truth, love peace. Truth refers to the ways of God, the word of God. What has he made known to us? What does he call for from us? We're to love that truth. We're to love the ways of God. So what does it mean to love the ways of God? Well, if we love God's ways, if we love his word, then we're going to engage into those truths. We're going to be connected. Bible reading won't just be, there's something that Christians ought to do. Let's get it done. If we love the ways of God, as we open up and reading it, we're realizing this is God speaking to me. This is God showing his heart. This is God letting me know what does it mean to share in what he's doing in the world. To engage with the word of God is to draw from it the life that God has placed in it. 
It is to read it along with the Spirit of God who is speaking to us of what do we do with these truths. They're not relics on the shelf. Okay, this is how we live today. And so we lift them up. We go through the day holding up. What has God said is true? This is what's important. This is what life is about. This is what I believe. This is what God is doing. This is what God has promised. To love the truth is to hold it up. And that's how we go through our day. We're not only to love the truth of God, we're to love peace. And the word peace, often used uh, in this scripture, uh, you've heard the word shalom. That is the Hebrew word. Uh, It means more than the absence of conflict. It is a, a deep, complex word that involves being made complete, where we're at peace and at rest because life is whole. And it not only refers to what is true about us now in wholeness, it refers to the relationship with God. That has been restored. Reconciliation has come. We are at peace within our own souls and with God because life is complete and whole and Christ has brought all that to pass. We're people to love life that is whole with God. To love that restoration with God, to love the life with Him, means we embrace the relationship. We love that we are in relationship with God. And so we live that way. And one way is to recognize that No freed prisoner stays in his cell. Men set free from prison don't knock on the door of the prison and say, could I get back in my cell? What what has Christ freed you from? Sin. He's freed you from the guilt of sin. So don't go back in and pick up the guilt. He's freed you from the power of sin. So don't go back and pick it up. Don't live in the cell. You've been set free. The door ripped off the hinges. You cannot be locked in there again. It is impossible. You can go back in. The door cannot close. No believer is trapped in sin. No believer is trapped under guilt. Christ has broken all of that. His blood shed was not weak or meaningless. It accomplished the full measure it was set out to do. And that was to remove the guilt of all your sin forever. To cleanse you and set your soul and your life free. You belong to him. So let us us not go back as if we're prisoners. Go back to cells. Go back to old ways. They don't belong to us. 
and to love the peace of God is to want to be a part of what God is doing. And that leads us to the final verses of this section. Beginning in verse 20. Not only are we to recognize that in Christ we're a people to anticipate feasting. We should see God is drawing many people to his feast. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come. Even the inhabitants of many cities the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself, I'm going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of the Jews, saying, Let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. God will not have his eternal feast filled with empty chairs. The heart of God that was willing to send his son, the son of God, willing to die bearing the wrath our sins deserve, the spirit of God sent into the world to regenerate men. They take those actions with utter seriousness and commitment. God will save. He will save many. He will have the feasting of his kingdom filled with uncounted numbers of people. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus gave a parable, making this point. And think about why does he give this parable? Why should we know this? A man gave a great banquet, invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those invited, come, everything's ready. But they all like began to make excuses. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. The servants said, Sir, what has been commanded has been done. Still there's room. The master said, Go out the highways, the hedges, and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Why does God want us to see this? There are people we're thinking, they'll never believe, they'll never come. But they will. Some that we think they'll never respond it will. Some, maybe you've ceased praying for, you pray for without real earnestness because you don't believe they'll change. God is going to fill his house 
God is going to save those we would think would never be saved. Some we think don't belong. Some we would feel uncomfortable that they would be saved. God is going to save. We see that many resist him. And it wearies us. God wants us to see that many will be saved so we would be encouraged to be people of the gospel, going forth in word and example and in prayer. God is encouraging us in gospel work that tends to discourage us. And he tells us, verse 20, people shall come. So be bold. That's when, when I typed those words, it challenged my soul. That wasn't a statement that I'm saying, like me, be bold like me. This is God's word preaching to my soul, to our souls. Let us be bold. Because the commitment to save belongs to God. And the effectiveness to save belongs to God. Our hearts may be burdened that people would be saved, but we don't bear the burden to save them. That's all upon God. And he's shown his capacity to save when he saved you. We, as pastors, we go through the book we're going to be preaching on months before, and we organize and we establish the breakdown of preaching texts, so we establish what we would preach, which sections, months and months ago. And yet, when Dan preached on chapter 8 a couple weeks ago, the week before, I'm like, why did we divide off verses 18 to 23? Why don't we just have him preach the whole chapter? It didn't seem to make sense looking back. Until we're in the middle of missions week, and I realized here was the goodness of God. Knowing where we would be and what we were to be hearing all week. And he held off this section to come at the end of our missions week. Now why would God do that? Because he's at work in our midst. Because he really does love you and he really does plan to use you. And he wanted to speak to our souls, when our souls were freshly faced with hearing the words of those out in mission challenging us to encourage us in this. This is God saying, I'm with you and I'm speaking to you. And so what are some thoughts as we close up about our part First is that in Christ, life is always bigger than what we can see. Part of God's message to weary souls 
is to remind us of the meaningful way in which he's using your life. And there's something about seeing that God is using our life that lifts the heart even when troubles are around us. To know God is using us. Is that not precious to us, people of God? And what, what is happening in and around you is much bigger than you can see because it is the work of God and nothing is bigger. So trust that God is wondrously at work right now in your life and circumstances, in your home, in your heart. Trust God by reminding yourself, lifting up the truths of him, lift up his commitment to you, see what's true of God, and know he is at work. So on this Mother's Day, uh, young moms with real small ones, and life for you can seem like drudgery. It's so intense. All you're doing is the same little details over and over again, and you can feel your life has gotten small. Life for you has not gotten small. Life for you has gotten narrow and focused on those precious ones that God will use you. You love God. You love his word. You love his church. You love him. And that narrowness of life is established in, in their hearts and lives, the most precious realities of this world. How wondrous is this season in the eyes of God. Or maybe... You're a mom who's not just a grandmom, you're a great-grandmom. And perhaps it feels like life has passed by because you can't do all that you used to. And life feels small and narrow to you as well. When you come in, your example for younger people to see, there's someone who's followed the Lord for decades. May we be like that. And you have the experience of all those years learning and serving the Lord, the richness of your prayers because of the wisdom you have of the word and ways of God. It is a wondrous season that God has you in. Let's treat all of life as a place and a time where God is graciously at work. Tell your soul that. God is at work in my life today. God's involved in what's happening. Second thought is that we should recognize all people are in one of two categories. They're in Christ or they need Christ. That's really it. Two categories. Everyone falls into them, one or the other. They are in Christ or they need him. So let's not create new categories and different categories. 
well, this one's that party or this party, or this one has this opinion about a social issue or justice issue or that one, or this is someone I can benefit from, or this is someone I don't like. Let's stop that! You don't find it in this book. You find none of those categories in this book. We find they need Christ or they're in Christ. And if we're looking at those other things, we are missing the work they need to be encouraged with the truths of the gospel or to be given the truths of the gospel. Let us set aside what the world picks up and gets caught up and is fighting with each other. We live for something different than that. Or we should. <laughs> Treat people according to their true categories. There's a fellow believer. And they need gospel encouragements. There is someone who don't, doesn't know the Lord. They need him. And last, live with a hope that draws people to Jesus. How does he end this section? People will come and say of the people of God, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. So let us live so people can see God is with us. We love Jesus so much people can see this is meaningful. We love them so much they can see, wow, the Spirit of God is powerful in them. We live joyful under God, and they can see life is meaning for them. Look what they're going through, and they don't lose their joy. Not everyone will be saved. Many will. And we can have a part in that. So let us live with that prayer and with that perspective. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that in your grace you would make clear to our hearts your intention for us this day. What is true for us? What is missing? What is out of focus? May we be encouraged by your grace and take a hold of it. And would you bring much fruit to it? That we cannot do. Lord, bring much fruit to us for the gospel's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.